This is a recording being made in the chapel of the opened book under the title Shadows Cast Before. The special subject this evening, study, is the typical teaching that is associated with the record of Enoch that occurs both in the book of Genesis and in the epistle of Jude. Those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us in our reading, will you switch off for a few moments while we read together that epistle, the epistle of Jude. I should like this evening to have been able to put before you a complete analysis of this epistle of Jude, but unfortunately, some time ago I had an accident and it was burned, and I haven't yet been able to find time to reproduce it. Now, that may not be so difficult for you, friends, because I've put on the board in chalk a bare outline. But those who are listening to this recording, they may feel that they've been cheated. So for the first few minutes, I'm going to go through this epistle that we've just read to point out the most obvious structural pattern. And if those who are listening to this recording can grab a sheet of paper and a pencil before we get going, they may also be able to get some idea of this perfect little pattern that is in this epistle and realize how God has superintended its writing. Will you notice in the first instance, the first opening, we have the benediction, verse 1, and at the end, in verses 24 to 25, we have the closing benediction. And you will notice that the key word in the first verse is that they are preserved. And when you come to the last, they're going to be presented without fault. And then will you realise that there's more ungodliness referred to in this epistle for its size than almost in any other part of the Bible. You begin to realise what that means. They're preserved in Jesus Christ and they're going to be presented faultless. And it's a rebuke to some of us, isn't it, then, when we think of the circumstances in which we live, to think that we do not live such a good show as is going to be set before us here. Well, that's the first. Then you will notice that he addresses them as beloved in verse 3. And his concern is about the faith. Contending for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Well, that is balanced, as you will also see in verse 20. But ye beloved building up yourselves on your most holy faith. Beloved, contend for it. Beloved, build on it. You're just like in the days of Nehemiah, when they built the wall, they had a trowel and a sword. Trowel and sword. Building and defending. Well, the next step is, verse 4, with the insistence upon the word ungodliness. Verse 4, ungodly men. And when you get the balance for that in verses uh, verses 15 and again in verse 18, the word ungodly comes so many times that I'm confident that if Jude had sent this to the publishers, 
the revising editor would have used a blue lead and said, don't say the word ungodly, ungodly, ungodly so many times. Just say another word that uh, makes it easier reading. God is not concerned whether it's good literature, friends. I think we could say there are some books that have been written that are better literature than the Bible. But the Bible doesn't pose as being literature. It poses as being a revelation of God. And if he says, ungodly five times over, that's bad literature, but it's dreadful revelation. So there it is, ungodly. Then we have the exhortation to remember in verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance. And in verse 17, he comes back and says, but beloved, remember. Now, notice what he would have them remember in verse 5. Though ye once knew this, how that the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. Strong expression. This, this is a, a theme that is developed in the epistle to the Hebrews. It forms a part of the teaching of the book of Joshua and Judges. And there is a, there is a thought that's being left in your mind here that it's one thing to be a saved person out of the land of Egypt, and it's another person to be an overcomer in the midst of all the murmuring and the ungodliness that may go on, and so triumph. That may be a little light upon a problem we'll have presently. Then we have, in verses 5 to 8, after the word remembrance, three examples. Those who came out of Egypt, the angels that kept not their first estate, and the dreadful condition of Sodom and Gomorrah. Three examples. Then we have something which is not revealed anywhere else in Scripture. Verses 9 and 10. The contention of Michael, the archangel, with Satan over the body of Moses. Not a hint of it anywhere in Scripture, apart from here. Then we come to three more examples. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And then we have another thing which is not mentioned in Scripture, that Enoch prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints. Perfect balance, no catching the word out, everything in its place. And then it comes back again, as we've seen, building on your faith. And then finally, the benediction, that you who are preserved can be, can be, he is able to keep you and to present you faultless. Well, that's as far as I can go because of our limited time and uh, the running out of this tape. But I felt that possibly those who are listening to this tape recording in other lands and other places may at least catch a glimpse of the way in which this has been constructed. Well, now it's obvious that our subject is going to be found in Genesis 5. In this series, we've looked at the typical meaning of the story of Adam and Cain and Abel and Seth. And now we've reached chapter 5. And when we open chapter 5, we're looking at the first book that's ever been written. The first book that ever could be written is written by Adam. At least his name comes first. 
and it was a family chronicle. It's one of those things which have been done since man was upon the earth. And if you've got an old Bible in your house that goes back some 50 or 80 or more years, sure enough there'll be births, marriages and deaths that are recorded. Now, here's the first thing to notice. It tells you about Adam. And then it says in verse 5, and he died. Then it tells you about Seth. Then it says in verse 8, and he died. And it says eight times over in this first book that's ever written, and he died. It's a solemn thought, isn't it? The first book in the Bible is a record of death. And he died, and he died, and he died. And I hope some of you are going to say, and I know what you're going to say next. Well, if you do, you're, you know more than I do, because I, I intend to do one thing and I do another. But I did intend to say this. And the last book of the Bible is the book of life. There we are. When you're associated with the first Adam, you're in this book, and he died. When you're associated with the second man, the last Adam, there's a book of life. So that may be a thing to keep in balance. But then you're also going to remind me that the very person that is going to be our study, Enoch, is the one exception in this list. It says eight times over and he died. But when it speaks about Enoch, it says in verse 21, we must read what it says, and Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred and sixty-five. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Before we comment upon that, there's problems in this, I want to turn to the way in which this is spoken of in the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 11. For that is an inspired comment. Mine is not. Hebrews 11. I would remind you, while you're finding Hebrews 11, that these examples are in pairs. Abel and Enoch are both associated with death. Noah and Abraham are both connected with an inheritance, or the word heir. Isaac and Jacob are both connected with dwelling in tents. All the way down, you'll find that they're in pairs. Now, Abel is the first martyr in the scripture. Our Saviour says that the blood of all those who have suffered for God's sake and truth's sake, from the blood of Abel, since the foundation of the word, from the blood of Abel up to the time when he spoke. So he was a martyr for the truth. And he died. But the next man was translated that he should not see death. There's the pair. And to show you that this is intended, Look at Joseph and Moses in verse 22 and 23. By faith, Moses, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, verse 24, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Two men are associated with Egypt, Joseph 
and Moses. And if you get their story, you find that it was the will of God that Joseph should go down into Egypt and ultimately sit upon the throne and it was the will of God that Moses should turn his back on Egypt and refuse the throne. If this doesn't teach us this, what else is it for? We're all so prone to put one another into straight jackets and into regiments and make us all march in step. Well, God respects the individual and he has such a wonderfully wide and glorious purpose that we cannot try to make people all into little copies of one another. Dispensational truth comes into this, of course. It was the right time for Joseph to go down because he was going to be a deliverer. But it was the wrong time for Moses to stop there for the hour had struck when they're going to be delivered. So we could go on, of course, and never get out of Hebrews 11 this evening. But I want to get back to this story of Enoch. But now shall we look at this again? By faith, verse 5, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Strange that he should put it the way, isn't it? He should not see death. Why doesn't it just bluntly say that he didn't die? There must be some reason. I'm not going to tell you whether I know the reason. We'll have to search and see for a bit. And he was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, three times over in one verse, translated, translated, translated. Before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, the next thing I notice is that tacked on to Enoch, not to anyone else in this list, is the reference that God is a rewarder. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And when I get a little bit further on the story, here it comes again. Verse 26. Moses, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Reward. Now, salvation is not a reward. Reward comes for the things that accompany salvation, after salvation. And that may be one of the reasons why we've got to watch our step when we are considering the typical teaching concerning Enoch. Shall we come back now then to uh, Genesis 5? The word Enoch means to be dedicated. I think you'll find that it's the same um, word, same spelling in Genesis 4 verse 17. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bare Enoch. So there's an Enoch in the line of Cain. Now without going back to Jude, I remind you that when the writer of Jude wants to refer to Enoch, he puts a little label on him. He says, the seventh from Adam. Because there are two of them. And if he didn't say the seventh from Adam, somebody might say, well here he is, Enoch, and think it was this man. And then I say, well, look at all the other names. Enoch had a son named Irad, 
I read of a son named Ahuzael. Ahuzael has a son named Methuselah. And Methuselah has a son named Labak. Oh, I must be right. Look at them. Supposing we turn to Genesis 5 again. And we look at some of the names there. Enoch. What's the name of his son? Jared. There's not much difference between Ired and Jared, is there? And what about his son? Well, Enoch has a son named Methuselah. That's very much like Methuselah. And when I get down the bottom of the page, I see there's a man named Labak. Oh, this is not merely a little bit of interest, friends. This is a red light of warning. As surely as God makes a move, Satan's got his counter move. We've seen that already, haven't we? Here it is. These names are so distributed through as to deceive unless you're wide awake. And you know ever since that, it's been a part of the tactics of the evil one to use the same name to deceive. So that when Paul wrote the epistle to the Corinthians and spoke about the deception that was going on, he said, there's another Jesus. Fancy that. Another Jesus. Another spirit and another gospel. All in one epistle. We must be careful we're not deceived merely by the label. We want to see what's inside. Well now we do know that it's a seventh from Adam. But then again it may, may be that our, our thought is directed to the seventh. Not only be, that we may be sure we've got the right man named Enoch, but we say, I wonder why he's the seventh. For supposing we ask another question, I wonder why Noah is called the eighth. Because there's a good, good number in between Enoch and Noah. Here they are. Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. And yet, Enoch's called the seventh, and Noah's called the eighth. So it looks as though there's a typical relationship to be connected with this seventh and eighth. You know, when Peter's writing about Noah, he says, the eighth person, and the next time he says, there were eight souls in the ark, as we're going to look at Noah before this series is over, we'll leave that. But number seven is the end of a series. It's the complete number. And Enoch takes us, as it were, in type to the very end of time, just at the end, the last. And now we see, more or less, where he stands. But before we go uh, further into that, I would like to discuss the question, so that you can hear both sides of the question, both sides of the story. In the book of Genesis itself, we have this expression. Genesis 37, verse 30. Genesis 37, verse 30. Reuben comes back to deliver his younger brother, Joseph, but he finds him gone. And he says in verse 30, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? The child is not, he's gone. And in chapter 42, I think it is, 36, I hope I've got the right chapter there, 42, 36. 
Jacob their father said unto them, Me he hath bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and you will take Benjamin away. Now, Jacob believed that Joseph was dead. So you see, when it says about Enoch that he was not, that is the ordinary way of saying a person's dead. Rachel mourning for her children because they are not. See? Then you will also find that it's used, both these words are used of another person who is parallel with Enoch. I speak of Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 3. 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 3. And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Be, hold ye your peace. That's the same word, to take. God took him. And in verse 17, And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. And they sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days, but found him not. Both the words, taken and found not, so that we say now, I wonder what this all means. Well, then somebody may say, well, don't forget that it says he was translated. But do you know that the word translated is used of dead bodies? Oh, you say, that can't be. Well, I think we better see for ourselves the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 15 and 16. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died here and our fathers and were carried over. Now, why didn't they translate that? Oh, I've said translate. That's another use of the word. Why didn't they say and were translated into Sychem? Well, it's the exact word. So you see, you can't make a clean sweep of this and say, well, that's certain. Now, has God written a book and purposely made it uncertain? Or have we not got quite the right point of view? Well, I'm coming back to where I started. Enoch is associated with reward. It says that he pleased God and he walked with God. And if a man can walk with God with the ungodliness which is emphasized in the context that is something over and above merely the faith that just believes unto salvation this is something extra and here we may have a picture of the end of time may I remind you that there was one company in the book of the revelation that is symbolized by a man child that the moment it was born it was caught up to God into his throne and then may I remind you that although we don't get the expression that he should not see death in Matthew 16, in Matthew 16 when our Saviour tells them about bearing a cross, bearing a cross, following him, losing everything in this life, getting it back in the life to come, he said there shall be some standing here who shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man taste of death. 
Why, if you bear a cross, friends, you're tasting death long before you die. So there's a possibility. That's all I can say. A possibility. That Enoch, if he was not, if that meant to say he did die, was immediately quickened and ascended. Similar way that Elijah did. He didn't see death. But I must leave it there because there are other things to be said and that is rather speculation. The only thing I felt was I ought to remind you that you can use every one of the words that are used in this fifth chapter to prove that Enoch died. One other passage. Hebrews 11 says in verse 13 These all died in faith not having received the promise. Now that refers to Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or then Enoch's included. But if it is limited to the seed that comes from Abraham and Sarah, then it's excluded. You see how difficult it is to be absolutely certain. So I have a feeling that we'd be wise to leave it there and realise that there will be some, possibly, at the end of time, that will be characterised by that peculiar translation that we can visualise as the man-child caught up to God at his throne right at the last time. But there are two other features that are crying out for consideration and our time, of course, is short. The next thing I would like you to do is to come back or turn on to Jude once more because of the wording of that passage concerning him in that epistle. If anyone is reading the revised version, I should like to know, because they could check what I'm saying. But if nobody is, we do have to take it on good faith. It says in verse 14, And Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these. That's the first thing I want you to notice. He prophesied of these. Now, this expression occurs elsewhere. It occurs in this uh, same epistle. And its literal rendering is to these, not of these. He prophesied to these. Now, you must test that if you are at all querying it. But how could Enoch prophesy to people that have not yet been born. Well, that's not all the trouble, friends. Because anybody who knows the Greek language will know that, behold, the Lord cometh is not a translation of that passage. This isn't the word cometh. This is the word he came in the past and it is so translated elsewhere. He came and preached peace to them that were afar off and to them that were nigh. Not he's coming to do it. He's already done it. What is it that makes it worse? Of course it does. But worse for what? We want to know what this means, not what we think it means. So should we just put the words down as God has said? Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied to these people who were around him at the time, saying, Behold, the Lord came in the past with ten thousand of his saints, and he's going to do it again. 
Now, if Enoch, right back in Genesis 5, could say the Lord had already come with 10,000 of his saints, when was that? Genesis 1, verse 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Have you forgotten that this very epistle of Jude says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he's throwing you back to some period when angels were involved in a fall. And there's enough evidence in scripture to know that that fall of the angels took place long before the days of Noah. So the second coming of Christ will only be doing what God has already done, done once in coming down in judgment upon that satanic rule that so abused his position that God had to destroy that world and sure enough it started all over again so that we've got a destroyed world in the days of Noah. And it was brought about by the same instruments, the sons of God and all the abuse. And in the midst of all that, Enoch stands, a witness. He points back and he points forward. Now we might uh, dwell on that for some time, but there's another feature, and I want to get that in as well. Shall we come back to Genesis 5? says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Methuselah, that's his son, lived an hundred and eighty and seven years. You would notice that these men lived up in the nine hundred years, some of them a little bit longer than others, but not one of them reached the complete thousand. When you get to the book of the Revelation, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand, and those who live in that day who in any measure keep in harmony with the word of God, will not die throughout the thousand years. So we've got another balance. There are some who have tried to explain this. Like you can get a book that explains that the manna in the wilderness was the sticky gum that go, grows on bushes. I think they would be up a gum tree if they were trying to get enough to feed Thousands of people every day in a wilderness by getting sticky gum off of bushes. That explanation is simply emptying the word of God in any meaning. And here, some have said, you see, you can't believe that Adam lived 900 and something years and Methuselah lived nearly a thousand years. It must mean that the years we call years were only, and they, they have a trial it months. Well, then you get ridiculous because if you reduce it down like that, then they are parents of children when they're about three or four months or two or three years old. You can't make it work. You can only accept it as it stands. But isn't it reasonable? When man was created, he was created upright. And there was no seeds, no evil in him. And the first man, although he came under the doom of death, we're not told a single word in the early chapters of the Bible that anybody was ill or sick. That only comes about by the abuse that man has done since in civilization. All the things that have got to do with industrial and manufacturing and I don't know what. Even when you get a long way beyond the book of Genesis, there's two men, both brothers, 
And you know what they do on the day they die? They do what some of you and I wouldn't be able to do. Walk up the top of a mountain. Walk up the top of a mountain. There's Aaron and there's Moses. They go up there and then they say, well, this is finished. Die. They didn't die of sickness like that. So you see, it took a little time for sickness to begin to gnaw away at the foundations and reduce the span of life. It's quite reasonable at the beginning that they should be so. Well, anyhow, Methuselah has come down as a proverb, hasn't it? As old as Methuselah. Let us give this thought to the glory of God. That Methuselah is associated with that terrific judgment that came in the days of Noah. Judgment. But what a light it throws upon the character and heart of God. For I'm going to show you in a minute what you practically already know. That Methuselah was standing between an ungodly world and the judgment of God. And that man lived longer than any man has ever lived on this earth. Doesn't that show you the long suffering of God? He didn't say, when that man dies, I'll bring this judgment on the earth and I'll finish him off quick. He said, I'll make him live longer than anybody else. The character of our God, the long suffering of God. Well, now let's get to this. Methuselah. The word Muth has occurred over and over and over again in Genesis 5. It's simply the word for death. M-U-T-H is the way we have to spell it in English. And the rest of the word is translated to be. Now Enoch is giving us two prophecies. One a spoken one. Behold, the Lord came with ten thousand of his saints, and he's coming again. And the other is the name he gave his son. Now, we are told in the scriptures that they sometimes gave a name to a child because it was going to be prophetic. We've already seen that in the case of Eve. When she had another son after Abel was killed, she called his name Seth. For God said, said she, said she, has appointed me, or set me, another seed instead. Well, now we have other examples. Later on, in Hosea, the first child is called Jezreel because of its meaning. The second is Lo-Ruhama, not receiving mercy. And the third one, Lo-Ami, not my people. Prophetic. Well, now we are told that Lamech, verse 28, he called his son Noah, verse 29, because this same shall give, shall comfort us. That's the word Noah. Uh, this word Noah is allied with the word Nahum, N-A-H-U-M, and it means rest or comfort. So Methuselah, why did Enoch call him Methuselah? Well, his name means, at his death, it shall be. For what? Oh, well, you've got to wait now. But there he was. There was the warning that the Lord had once come in judgment. Here was a little warning growing up in their midst with a name like that. So that is death. It shall be. Now, will you just do a little, little piece of arithmetic? Very, very small. 
find out how this fits. In the uh, chapter 7 of Genesis and verse 6, we are told that Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. 600 years old. Well now, again, in the 20... Now let me see where this comes. 28th verse of chapter 5, Lamech lived an hundred and eighty and two years and begat a son. So I'll put down 180, 182. And then I'll go back to verse 25, and I find Methuselah lived an hundred and eighty and seven years. An hundred and eighty seven. Well now if I add up six hundred, one hundred and eighty two, and one hundred and eighty seven, of course I've got it all written down here, I wouldn't dare do it friends, not without, but I've got it all written down, I'll make it 969. Well you know what we're going to see, don't you? That we discover that the death of Methuselah was 969 years and he died. Verse 27. 969 years. So the very date of the flood by those computations show you that the very year that Methuselah died the flood came. The judgment came. So here we have then Enoch a picture of the man who can be preserved upheld in spite of all corruption and bear a testimony the epistle of Jude starting with the word preserved and ending with the word presented and then all the terrific corruption that goes on angelic as well as human and things revealed that we know nothing about except they're mentioned Michael and the the contention for the body of Moses and things like that, showing us how much there is that we don't know, which is good for our, uh, good for us to know. And then we come back and see this other prophecy, this child born with this name given. We realize how wonderful it is that right in these early chapters, some of them that we would possibly pass over and say, well, we don't want to dwell on that chapter. I do remember many, many years ago going to a meeting and seeing the look on the people's face when I said I'm going to speak on Genesis 5. Oh, they thought, like that, you see. And he died. Well, one didn't anyhow, or he didn't die in the same way. And it's that intervention on the part of God that gives it such a character to ourselves. Then may I just say this. You and I belong to a very different calling from that of which Enoch belonged. But we're all Enochs in this sense, friends, that we've been translated. You remember Colossians chapter 1? He hath delivered us from the authority of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. We are translated people. And so, if we are translated people, the same epistle to the Colossians says to that people, why as though living in the world are you subject to ordinances? He assumes that you're not living in the world. That is to say, from a spiritual point of view, some of your neighbours or friends are looking for you and they cannot find you for you are not, for God's taken you, in that sense. 
I wish it were true, friends. I think we keep on getting return tickets and coming back again. And you know, the return ticket is always available to a child of God. You're sensible to that? Read Hebrews 11. If they had been mindful of the country for which they come out, doubtless they would have found opportunity to have returned. The devil is always waiting on folks with a few return tickets. Black market, but very cheap. See, oh yes, you can go back any amount of time. And if you don't go back, friends, if you don't go back, you can stand with some of Israel who returned in heart after they'd been delivered. After they were out of Egypt and across the Red Sea and in the wilderness, they said, we remember the onion and the garlic. That's over there. And Jude says, remember. Gives them something else to think of. And the writer of the book of Numbers, he puts in the book of Numbers exactly in the right spot in the structure, friends, the garlic and the onion and the cucumber that they left behind and the grapes and the pomegranates that are awaiting them. But you see, grapes and pomegranates are not so tasty, are they, as the onion and the garlic and the fish of Egypt. So, it says on one occasion in the book of Numbers, they appointed a captain to return. They did it in heart. So there's the possibility. Well, we have this man who stood, and we are translated ones. And if we're only walking in harmony with our calling, some of our friends will be looking for us, and they won't find us. One of the explanations being given of the problem about Enoch, it's not a very theological one, but it may be a very wise one, if we've got any problems still. A little child said this, that Enoch walked with God one day, and he went so far, that he never came back again. Oh, good enough. That's the goal of the walk with God. And we've got this stress here. Well, now, will you turn for the last few minutes of our study to the second of Peter? Because Jude, it practically lifts out a chapter of second Peter and writes his epistle round it. But I won't deal with that. I'll deal rather with the third chapter. In 2 Peter chapter 4, I said I wasn't going to deal with it, but I must call your attention to one or two things. In 2 Peter chapter 4, if God spared not the angels that sinned and cast them down to hell, Two Peter, what about chapter 2, verse 4. Oh, I'm sorry. 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Then there's a case of Noah. Then there's a case of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then Lot comes into the story. And then we get, in verse 6, an overthrow. There's the word overthrow. And then again in chapter 3, 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. There's a catastrophe and a cataclysm. Words that are reminiscent of Genesis 1, verse 2. So that Enoch could be pointing back to the flood 
that we read of in Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the fountains of the great deep were broken up in the time of the flood. He says, I'm pointing you both ways. God's done it once. He'll do it again. And believe me, it's got to be done all over again. For there was, there will be scoffers in the last days, as sure as there were scoffers in the days of Noah. And they say, where is the promise of his coming? For all things continue the same. But, we are told that the Lord, verse 9, is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, Lord. He is the long-suffering element. Methuselah outliving everybody else. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then we have the final catastrophe. That the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. But what are we going to be like if we're involved in a day like that? Well, says Peter, that's all right. That's all right. Nevertheless, verse 13, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. If he can bring Noah and his family through that early catastrophe, he can bring Christ and his redeemed family through whatever may be waiting. So we come back to Jude. If God can write the word preserved in the first verse of an epistle like Jude, and if he can write presented without fault in the closing benediction, and if he can pile on the, the terrific statements about those days, not only the word ungodly, but all those other descriptions, when he likens them to Cain and Balaam and Korah, and calls them spots, and feeding themselves without fear, and clouds without water, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, wandering stars, are these, are these descriptions of a child of God, or are they descriptions of the evil seed of Cain, that are going to be so dominant in the earth, when the book of the Revelation comes, that this is just a foreshadowing of what God intends us to see, and to lean hard upon his protective care. Well, I felt that we might perhaps profit by turning our attention this evening to this one outstanding type. And if you are a bit disappointed because I haven't been able to come down absolutely on one side of the fence or the other, I rather felt that I would like to give you both sides of the story, preach you as grown-up instead of children, and ask you, to seek to settle it so far as you can between yourself and the Lord. But don't let it so worry you that you forget that the thing that matters most is not to be able to resolve all scriptural problems, but to see to it that whatever else happens, you remember that Enoch pleased God, and he walked with him, and God took him. That's the goal. So may the Lord help us to press on in some measure to be worthy of his ranked with those whose names are listed in the Hebrews chapter 11.